thank you for listening to this episode of Changes Big and Small. The guests today are sociologists and demographers Nakia Kwashi and Sarah Patterson. Dr. Patterson is a family demographer and sociologist. Her research addresses whether and how social norms and family composition influence caregiving behaviors and well-being for family members. She has also studied the role of complex families and kinlessness in the lives of older adults. Dr. Nakia is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Studies at the University of Rhode Island. Her research focuses on family ties, health, and well-being of older adults in cross-national perspective. She examines these topics in global regions of Latin America and the Caribbean, Southeast Asia, and Europe. Welcome, Sarah and Nakia, to Changes Big and Small. Thank you so much for having us. (laughs) Yes, thank you. It's really a pleasure to have the opportunity. You both study family ties and aging, which And so the first question I have is, how do family ties change over our lifespan? So if we look at young adulthood, mid-adulthood, late adulthood, what do we notice? Nikia and I talked beforehand that it was funny because as demographers and sociologists, we're so used to just describing things. So this is great to have as a first question for us. So I think in terms of family ties over the life course, things come to mind based off of my own research. And I'd be interested to hear Nikia's take as well. One of the things I think about is that at least in the sociology literature, a lot of the focus has been on parent child ties over the life course. And so I think that's what I have the most familiarity with because that's tended to be the focus of the research. And part of that is due to the fact that we often use surveys. And so surveys are limited in their ability to ask questions about you know, too many things at once. So parent and child ties, because they tend to be the main tie is what I often think about when you ask about family ties over the life course. And I think the important thing to think about with that is that family ties can change over the life course in many different ways. One of the things that Nikki and I's research talks about is intergenerational transfers. So this is like giving time or money or help to your family members. And what we find is that often these exchanges tend to go from older generations to younger generations early in the life course. Then in young adulthood, you start to see some young adults also giving upwards to older generations. And then it really shifts, especially towards the very end of the life course, but they can be dynamic and complex over the entire life course. And so that's sort of the other thing I think about in terms of Mm -hmm. family ties is like family complexity and diversity. This has the ability to change over time in terms of like your ties and your relationships with family members. So you might be close to one family member when you're younger and not when you're older or vice versa. As our research sort of develops, we can think more about many different types of family ties that there are beyond parent and children, but we do tend to know the most about those. Yeah. And just following up on that, why we probably tend to know the most about parent and children relationships is that there actually hasn't been a lot of research on other networks. So friendship tie networks, I should say at the population level, not that the studies don't exist, but those studies are more limited in the size and scope. Part of it is a matter of the types of data that are available to examine 
how family networks change over time. And the follow-up with that is on intergenerational support. That's also more studied, I think, at the later end of life. So Mm. with aging surveys, as aging has become more globally prevalent, and there are more data sets available to examine intergenerational support patterns across different country contexts. What's really interesting is that there is sometimes consistency in the direction of supports in terms of the ties, if we think over the life course. Are you enjoying listening to this podcast? Please take a minute to review it wherever you're listening. This helps other people find the show. So in young adulthood, children typically need more support from their parents, whether that's for education or socioeconomic circumstances like unemployment or unstable employment changes in their own partnership. So if children become divorced or mm-hmm. separated from cohabitation, et cetera, they will still rely on their parents for support. For instance, moving into their parents' home after a divorce. Co-residence is an aspect of support as well. So that happens in young adulthood. It can happen in middle adulthood too, for sure. And middle stereotypically conceptualized around late 30s, 40s. But how that's defined across countries will also vary. (laughs) The point is that in some countries, this downward support continues regardless of Mm -hmm. the age, but the intensity may differ. Just to clarify, the downward, it's parents providing support to children. Mm -hmm. So you may not see so much change if we look at families across our life course, but you will observe in some country contexts that it's more common for parents to continuously provide support to the children. And in other places, it's the reverse, that children are more likely from young adulthood upward to provide support to their own parents and grandparents. I guess socioeconomic status and social context, like what's happening in the world at the time, may factor into that as well. So for example, now there is a lot of talk about millennials not being able to afford homes or not Mm -hmm. having the amount of disposable income that their parents' generation had. So as we watch what else is happening in the world in terms of opportunity or job market, then that also affects the direction of the flow of support. Mm -hmm. Right, for sure. And to build on something Nakia had talked about, co-residence is like a great example of that. There's a lot of research that came out after the recession, at least in the U.S., that people were doubling up, that family members, especially young adults, were moving back in with their parents because of the socioeconomic situation. And I think you sort of saw variations of that with the pandemic and people making decisions in that way. So I would definitely agree with that. Also, we kind of alluded to it that there are differences in different parts of the world. From my own experience, I think being from St. Lucia, being from the Caribbean, there's often an expectation that that switch will flip at some point where Mm -hmm. when you're younger, your parents will provide more for you. And when you have more means, you're going to help them out as Mm -hmm. they grow older, especially with countries that do not maybe have the social system net that would be able to provide support or help for older adults. Yeah, exactly. And this is basically what I study. I look at cross-national patterns of family support, but also looking at it in different contexts where data is available. And some of my own work from 
within Latin America and the Caribbean does show that as a region within Latin America and the Caribbean, there is this commonality, you can say, of children being the providers, main sources of support, traditional sources of support to older adults, because many countries do not have social welfare systems to support older adults in health and care, but even economic supports, pension systems are not generally strong if you compare it to North America or within European countries. But then there's still a lot of variation across countries within the region. What holds actually is a kind of similar pattern that in countries where there's more support available for older adults, just stronger welfare system, you see a lower prevalence of children providing support. Mm -hmm. And that might be based on parents not having the need for support. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, the data is not there to say that, but we can allude to that based on other patterns in different parts of the world. Barbados has one of the strongest social welfare systems for older adults in the region in terms of care services, pension systems. At the same time, there is still a strong normative element of children providing support. There's a strong prevalence of co-residence too, because many older adults do not live in facilities as a matter of preference, possibly, or cultural norm, possibly, or lack of safety, security. There's a whole range of factors that might be contributing to it. But still, given that it's one of the stronger systems in the region of supports for older adults to have this high prevalence still of co-residence with children, kind of attest to this normative element as a Caribbean, pan-Caribbean cultural aspect. And then a similar pattern you would see in Thailand. So that's another country where I lived, but also worked and studied intergenerational support patterns. It's very normative still for older adults to co-reside with their children. It's still expected, even though Thailand has experience really significant economic and social development since the 1990s. And the government has improved a lot of its social support systems for older adults. There's also universal health care and really big push towards that. Overall, there's been improvement, yet the norms maintain the cultural aspects of living with children is still very, very strong. Some of my own work also looks at the differences in the well-being between parents who co-reside with their children versus those who live non-co-residents. Parents who do not live with their children actually have higher risks for psychological distress than those who mm. live with their children. A lot of that is driven by that's normative to live with your mm. children. So if you're not in that demographic like the state. stigma of it. Yeah, right? maybe it's the stigma. And then also the, like the feelings of abandonment. So feeling of feeling... abandonment, exactly. Mm-hmm. Or just being separate from the norm yeah. overall mm-hmm. and what you might have expected, what you would have prepared for yeah. that doesn't hold up within your life. So there's that at like two extremes of geographic regions, but with similar cultural underpinnings. Mm-hmm. But then even within the European context, there's a lot of variation too. And we see that in Southern European countries, mm-hmm. there's stronger norms of co-residence and family mm-hmm. cohesion relative to Northern and Western European countries. And there's a right. lot of difference in actual social investment, social welfare structure for older adults across Southern, Western, Eastern, Northern Europe. So this typical north-south pattern Mm -hmm. is very much discussed in the literature and Mm -hmm. it's still highly relevant 
to the current context of Europe. One of the things that you mentioned in the pre-interview form was that there are some positive and some negative attributes of family ties for older adults. What are some of those positive aspects of family relationships when it comes to the health and well-being of older adults? One of the things that comes up in the intergenerational transfers and caregiving for older adults literature is that there's a lot of focus on the negative. I mean, everybody's heard the term, I would think, caregiving burden. There's this sort of pushback that's natural, I think, in terms of thinking that there can be positive as well as ambiguous ties to family members. It's not always necessarily negative or burdensome, but there are positives that can come out between these relationships. Think back to some of the things Nikia was talking about. If there are these cultural norms or even just within your family, the norm to caregive for your parents, it might actually make you feel really good to do that, right? It makes you feel like you've given back to them what they've given to you. It might make you feel like there's meaning in this relationship, that there's this positive tie. So thinking about it as a continuum of positive to negative with family members. Another thing that comes up in this is that family ties can also be ambiguous, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're not really quite sure what your tie is or how you feel about that tie to a particular family member. And Speaking of the life course, that can change over the life course. So perhaps, you know, thinking about family complexity and family diversity, if you get married or divorced or people within your family get married and divorced, you can see this sort of ambiguity pop Mm. up where people aren't quite sure how they feel about that tie or maybe about the new family member. I think there's so many stereotypes Mm -hmm. of that, right, in TV shows about those dynamics. So yeah, I think it's important to think about the fact that again, these ties are very complex and dynamic and that they can range in how people feel about them across the life course, across the tie, and as they age and their parents age as well. Are there any specific examples? This is not in my research, but just doing literature reviews related to work on caregiving. There is more so caregiving amongst older adults, which is typically the partnership. So one partner providing care for another partner. And one study that has struck me, and I'm not going to remember the details, so maybe I'll share it with you. you. Look it Actually, up, yeah. it has a background. But one of the striking patterns was also looking at gender dynamics of this, because it, this is a very important aspect of the positive, negative landscape mm-hmm. of family interactions and who seems to... Who benefits. Say, mm-hmm. Not just benefits, but has a larger impact, whether it's both positive or negative. So what I'm thinking of is uh, a study that Mm -hmm. looks at household tasks also versus caregiving. And caregiving can be very intense. So there's also a lot of work that looks at the intensity of caregiving and how it differs for your health outcomes Mm -hmm. and well-being broadly, life satisfaction, or maybe even loneliness and more direct actual physical health, mental health, et cetera. So the study that I'm thinking about looking at women who provided household tasks to their partner who is also disabled. So they provide care as well, but different types of care. And you could think of care as personal care, but also everything surrounding that, like doing household chores. Household chores were positively associated with well-being generally versus the actual personal care. So there is something to be said for having a little more fine-tuning around how we think of family interactions, family care, 
and what it means for individuals' well-being. A lot depends on what you do overall and the intensity of what we do, which can be applied to nearly every part of life, but within the household context and given the nature of some of the relationships that we engage with, as Sarah was just saying, depending on how you feel about exposing mm-hmm. within your family, you take on roles either willingly or unwillingly with extreme care or not. And your approach to that, if we do more assessment of these differences and the types of supports and intensity of supports that are provided, personal care, household chores, instrumental kinds of supports, it gives us a more comprehensive picture overall of positive and negative interactions potentially Mm -hmm. for older adults' well-being. Not all family relationships are positive or any relationships overall, but at least at the later stages of life when most older adults' networks are really within their family realm, that's your main source of interaction, generally speaking, and reliance of support systems. It requires a greater investment, I think, to really understand at granular level as possible how these interactions are operating and what they mean for individuals' well-being. Because from a broader social policy perspective, if societies by default rely on family members for support Mm -hmm. of older adults, if we can see at a population level that people are not actually doing so great with their families mm-hmm. <laughs> with health outcomes. That's just a downward spiral overall. I know, for example, in some communities, in some cultures, even in North America, where families do not live close together, the children may go and visit the grandparents over the holidays, mm-hmm. especially longer holidays. Or in some communities, in some cultures, pe- grandparents may be part of caregiving, where they help with taking care of the children, maybe on a regular basis, on an occasional basis. So in those types of relationships where there may be multiple generations, is that part of your research at all in terms of the impact in any direction from those relationships? Not mine directly right now, but it's on the agenda. Sarah? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of what I was referencing back at the very beginning of the interview about the fact that there are many more family ties beyond just parent and children. I think grandparents are a great example. So grandparents have gotten a lot more attention recently, partly because people are living longer, so they're more likely to be alive to be grandparents, basically, to put it very bluntly. And so we do see these changes in the family ties. And what you do find is that grandparents are providing a lot of caregiving for grandchildren. But then speaking of the positives of of these relationships, they receive positive health benefits back. There's research that shows that taking care of younger children as a grandparent does have positive health effects. So you see this, especially in literature, I'm thinking like Christina Cross's work and Natasha Pakalkis, like that multi-generational households are becoming much more common for young children nowadays. So you're seeing these changes across the life course as well. I know for me, I grew up with my grandmother. And so people would always Mm -hmm. say that I was very old fashioned. I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. a positive or a negative, but (laughs) I think I grew up with a particular mindset that I was exposed to from being around my grandparents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I do have one study on grandparenting, grandparent caregiving and life satisfaction amongst older adults in Jamaica, because it's so common in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. 
And as Damian is saying, for various reasons, like grandparents provide care either within the household or children visit, you know, for long periods. It could be for holidays, but mm-hmm. also on a weekly basis with the parents going to work, you spend time with your grandma, which was the situation for my brother and myself when we were growing up based on how our parents worked. So when you asked the question, I was initially thinking of literally within the household, living together, multi-generational households, which is also quite prevalent and increasingly so as Sarah was just saying. But thinking of work within Jamaica, I did look at grandparent <laughs> caregiving. And as Sarah is mentioning in terms of well-being, yes, caregiving can be strenuous. And there is a lot of work that shows for grandparenting, the intensity of the caregiving does matter. So how frequently you're doing it, how many hours, Mm -hmm. and it's associated with health outcomes in some contexts. An example in Jamaica, when we also look at gender dynamics of this, women are typically the ones providing care. Women provide more care than men, generally speaking, across the life course. This extends within grandparenting care as well. The study Within Jamaica, comparing grandparents' life satisfaction, grandmothers who provided care regularly, but also occasionally, had better life satisfaction than those who were not providing care. So they had grandchildren, but were not providing care. Mm -hmm. And then for grandfathers, it was actually regular caregiving that was associated with higher life satisfaction which wouldn't be expected. That was a novel mm-hmm. finding, I would say. I'd have to tell my dad that. That yeah, he should spend I, more time with his grandchildren. With his grandchildren. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Yes. So I think there is something there, and I would like to do more of this work within the Caribbean overall, it's just having data to mm-hmm. do this. Uh, but there is something which I thought was really interesting and really novel because it challenges a lot of gender norms mm-hmm. and expectations we have mm-hmm. around care and the associations with well-being too. And especially in the Caribbean context where men are generally not seen as being very active in the household overall. Well, that's also interesting because mm-hmm. when I think about parenting versus grandparenting for men in the Caribbean context or even outside of the Caribbean, but within Caribbean Mm -hmm. families. What I notice is that the parenting of grandchildren or the caregiving of grandchildren is much more fun and relaxed. (laughs) So maybe it's much more life-giving than when you have to actually parent your children, right? Right. And so the person that my father is with his grandchildren is not the person that (laughs) brought me up. You know, right. so, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, so yeah. Right. How yes. caregiving for as a grandfather could be really energizing and a positive outcome. Men, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It is interesting. It's interesting to think about in terms of what is happening there. Is it because it's not your own child? Because I feel that way about seeing my mom <laughs> interact with the grandchildren too. So it's like, is it the parent-child versus grandparent-grandchild tie? Or is it just aging Mm. in general? Because as Nakia's research found, you do find that men are more likely to caregive when they are Mm. older in terms of grandparent-child, grandparent and grandchild care, but also for their spouse. And so is this a change across the life course as if they, you know, feel like that becomes an option for them as they're older or becomes more necessary? I don't think that there's a lot of resolution in terms of what's happening there, but I think that that's a really interesting thing to think about in terms of the tie versus the natural process of aging and how we develop as family members over the life. Yeah, Yeah, I completely agree. And another level that I would add 
that needs a lot more investigation overall is specifically within grandparenting, but men's caregiving Mm -hmm. roles is what does the care look like? Because part of the fun, Mm -hmm. energizing aspect, not disputing it, is also based on the nature of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So in the Jamaican context, at least for the study that I did with colleagues in Jamaica, there's no gender difference with caregiving. But there is still a reality that women Mm -hmm. do provide more care than men. It's both grandmothers providing Mm -hmm. regular care and occasional care. So something about the caregiving in itself, regardless of the intensity, broadly speaking, is beneficial Mm -hmm. to women. So is this fulfilling some kind of gender norm or is it also a matter of what they are doing with the children? But for grandfathers to see that it's regular care, and this is almost daily. So is it about seeing your grandchild daily or is it that you have more fun time? You know, like you look forward to the fun time, basically. If it's Some meaning to your life or... <laughs> yeah, it's giving yeah. meaning to your life based on the activities that they're doing. We don't have a lot of resolution mm. and clarity on what grandparents do with their grandchildren. At least not that I can point to off the top of my head, I know that there are so many studies that look at this level of detail. And I think this is where it's going to be really interesting to see how that differs. Well, of course, the age of the children matter as well, because the level of dependency varies across all ages. So if you are doing more active kind of activities with them, that can be energizing versus things that need more intense acute attention because of the level of need but maybe it's energizing because it's not your entire day Mm -hmm. that you're doing that as a grandparent versus Mm -hmm. a parent depending Mm -hmm. on if you are the main caregiver or not because I think that also is a difference if you're the main caregiver as a grandparent versus um more occasional occasional even if regular Mm. even if exactly exactly It's interesting because I think in a lot of places, when people think about caregiving or caregetting as an older adult, then they think about children. Like I know, for example, in the Caribbean context, people will often say, oh, aren't you going to have a child? Who's going to take care of you when you're old if you don't have a child? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that doesn't come up so much in terms of partners. I mean, sure, women tend to live longer than men. But still, there Mm -hmm. is an opportunity for men to be involved in caregiving Mm -hmm. for their partners as well. So Mm -hmm. I was interested to see some of your research around the impact that children have versus partners for well-being, for Mm -hmm. less loneliness, more happiness Mm -hmm. in life, especially as an older adult. So I can talk about that because that's one of my main areas of work. And it's one of my most passionate areas of work for some of the same reasons, like based on the assumptions of, okay, if you don't have a child, you are doomed. And I'm very interested in this because I don't mm-hmm. have children and mm-hmm. I don't yeah. have intentions yeah. of having children. So yes. this is a little bit self-serving. <laughs> yes. So I completely understand. And based on most recent work that I've done across nationally, across 20 countries, the overwhelming evidence was that whether you have a child or not was generally not associated with your health across multiple dimensions of health, depression, chronic conditions, self-reported health, to be fair, your reporting of having disabling conditions, your overall health. 
But where we did see patterns, they varied so much and some really went against expectations. One of the most striking examples is a country like Mexico, that's a middle-income country, but social welfare systems are less developed for older adults compared to the U.S. as a most direct proximal example. In Mexico, actually we found for older adults, 50 and older, those who were childless had better health nearly across every outcome. And the same was the case in Hungary, which is also a very traditional country within Central Europe. Childless older adults actually had better health than those who had at least one child. Some of the ongoing work we're doing, looking at different numbers of children with the same countries, we're also seeing this pattern holding up. So for each additional child, older adults have worse health than if they are childless or have fewer children. It's validated in other research that children are major source of support for older adults in these countries, but not having children does not put you at risk for poor health as well. And the hypothetical explanation that the team came up with, and we're going to explore further, is maybe there is something about having children overall, but especially larger family sizes in context with limited resources to support childbearing and child rearing that makes it strenuous and that can impact your long-term health in later life, right? So it's not all bad if you do not have children. A lot of it depends on where you live, the country context overall, and having children in low-resource settings may not be so beneficial for your long-term health. It also depends, which is another area of work that we'll start getting into is what this quality of relationship looks like with the children and even the children's own resources. Because you can have multiple children, but if many children are in a very tight socioeconomic situation, or even if you have one of those within a high need situation as an adult, but within a low resource context, that adds a lot of strain. And the low resource is not just for the older adult, but also for children. If you live in a country without really secure employment, safety nets, etc., mm-hmm. it potentially increases the child's dependency on the parent. Mm-hmm. And if it's not doing that, it limits the child's ability to support the parent. Right. So then that can affect the parent's health as well. So the take-home message with children and health is that it's generally not bad. A lot of it is contextual when you're in your later life. But for partnership, however, what's most consistent across a lot of literature is not having a partner in later life is actually more detrimental for your health and your well-being. And some of my Mm -hmm. own work with the same team that I just mentioned, we just looked at this in the context of COVID-19, comparing specifically among European older adults and Israel. And basically what we found is that older adults who did not have a partner had the most significant changes in their loneliness. Mm -hmm. One, they stayed lonely, but also they were more likely to become lonely during the pandemic. And this was not the case so much for those without children. And then I also looked at this within Latin America and the Caribbean with some comparative data that I had available from 2000. Although it's older, the pattern still held that Mm -hmm. when we looked at childless versus parents, there was no real difference in depression. 
But even if you lived with other people mm-hmm. but did not have a partner, you were at higher risks mm-hmm. for depression. So partnership in itself presents a level of resource in like actual instrumental resource for supports or the emotional mm-hmm. connection, the sense of companionship, the social, social network, network of it that's distinct from children. I don't know if she's going to listen to this, but Miss P keeps asking me, so Damien, <laughs> what's happening with your partnership situation? <laughs> Think about when you get old and you might want to have somebody for companionship. Turns out that she's not so wrong. <laughs> yeah, it turns out. I can't remember who used to tell me this, but somebody's who's older, or I've heard it from multiple people, have said, you know, you should not be going to bed alone for very long. <laughs> but it's the I think that shows a different level of intimacy than just having a close friend or anything else right, right. like it's a shorthand for right. the type of relationship there Sarah are you no I just wanted to echo what Nakia said and the study she did using multiple countries I think is just like a really good example of how the context matters it's what we've been talking about the context matters the place matters but there are some universals in these relationships and I would definitely agree that in my own work looking at mortality or death that partners matter much more than children when you're doing a comparison of the two okay so as our time is well wound down <laughs> is there anything that you want people to take away or any invitation that you have for people as we end? Um, well, maybe Sarah and I both agree on this too, as we study caregiving and family as a main source of that sort of supports for older adults. One takeaway would be as early as possible in your life to start mm-hmm. thinking about your range of support networks and what you need to build that as you mm-hmm. age. And that's a continuous revision, as we know, because people's lives change, your circumstances change. If you move, even, you know, I've moved a lot in my life, but I have been able to maintain a core social network. Granted, in the most pressing circumstances, they would not be the immediate people. <laughs> so I have to also <laughs> do my own homework with that, you know, thinking of the your support networks. But yeah. the point is overall, and I think Sarah would agree, is a wide range can be beneficial in the most immediate mm-hmm. circumstances, of course, but also long term. And, and we're thinking here beyond the family relationships as well, right? Beyond family relationships, yes. Mm-hmm. Beyond family relationships, because... There's no guarantee built in with any given relationship overall, but also as we just ended with comparing children and partners, having children Mm -hmm. in your life doesn't necessarily guarantee that they will be available and be willing Mm -hmm. and you will have positive relationships with them throughout your life to have as a support network. So I think, yeah, that would be one of the main takeaways that's actionable. Let's put it that way. Something you can start thinking Mm -hmm. through and working on. Sarah? And you're too polite, but I guess the other Mm -hmm. one for me and anybody else who may be in this position is think about partnership. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) Yes, Um, totally. I I think... But I'm not going to, I don't want to also add that pressure because I feel like it's the right. same kind of pressure with children. Right. You right. invent a partner. I don't know that you, you know, there, there is just right. a practicality of how you yes. do this at the same time. And a lot of that is organic because with partnership, it's somebody you have 
well, yeah, you have choice in both ways, but you make a choice then to be with someone for an extended period of time, whether that's till the end of your life or somewhere in between. So with all of it, I think the other thing that Sarah would probably agree with, whether you have children or the partner, mm-hmm. having quality relationships matter because there is also work that shows that it's quality partnerships. It's not just having the partner, but if you have a poor quality partnership, it increases your risk for poor health. Mm -hmm. So you don't want that either. So (laughs) it's the quality of relationships that you also have to build. And there's emerging work on singlehood, you know, over the life course that I haven't really Mm -hmm. followed as yet, but I will start paying attention to more because thankfully there's a lot more calling for attention on lifelong singlehood. This is increasingly common. Mm -hmm. It's a different Mm -hmm. family structures, different Mm -hmm. social network structures that are Mm -hmm. really critical. And Mm -hmm. what I will not advocate for is putting so much attention to and having a partner for your later life, because Mm -hmm. it's not to say that Uh, it's like, not I at any cost, right? It's not at it's, any cost. It's not at any cost. Mm. And it also varies so much by generation and context. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of these traditional quote-unquote resources for support in later life, I would say is driven by how social policies are designed. So we have a role as society to advocate for policies that are going to Mm -hmm. account for individuals rather than Mm -hmm. family status. That's a good point, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what I, so Mm -hmm. I said at an actionable level uh, at the individual, I would say it still comes down to broadening our range of social networks and the quality of relationships that we have Mm -hmm. within those because they definitely matter for our health. And I think COVID definitely shows us that overall. Mm -hmm. Sarah, last words? No pressure. Yeah, yeah. No, I just want to say exactly what Nikia said. I think Nikia had it spot on. Just one small elaboration on it and tying sort of what she said together is that thinking about these ties beyond just the traditional ones we think about, like our parents or our children or our partner and thinking about our broader social networks, like she was saying, in terms of like your friends, you know, I don't know if other people have this, but talking about like retiring or things like that. And you might, you know, talk about that or joke about that with your friends, but I do think it's important. So like, just to give you a personal anecdote, like my best friend knows my end of life plan, you know, I've shared with her what I want in terms of caregiving and end of life planning I think that's kind of shocking to people or depressing to people. But again, as Nikia pointed out, I think the pandemic sort of made these issues front and center for a lot of people. And so for me, it was important not only for my family to know, but also for her to know. And so just thinking about the fact that these issues do come up and your social network can include other people other than what we traditionally think of as your family Mm -hmm. tie, like family can encompass many people and those people will also be important as you age. Yes, I think that's a great place to end. Thank you for your time. Thank you you so much. Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. This was was really wonderful (laughs) and really great conversation. (laughs) Yeah, it's always nice to be able to talk about our research in different ways. So this is really great. Thanks to both of you. And I hope you have a nice weekend and a good rest of your day. 
You too. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please share it with a friend who you think will benefit. Do you have a question for me or a topic that you would like me to cover in an episode of the podcast? Reach out at contact at changesbigandsmall.com. Remember, change begins with one small step. Have a great week.